0: Welcome to the Fairview Church podcast. At Fairview Church, we are dedicated to reaching our neighbors with the true freedom found in full surrender to Christ. To find out more about our church, including service times, location, and current sermon series, please visit us online at www.myfairview.org. Amen. There's joy in the house of the Lord today. What an opportunity to just come together and worship. Man, i just love Devin, love love this whole team that gets up here and, and leads us in praise each week. So why don't we just give him a hand of applause because, man, the Lord, is, the Lord is good. He has gifted us here with such, incredible, uh, such an incredible family. Uh, my family is here today. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Dan. My wife, Julia, is there in the front. A couple of our daughters made it to service, and a couple of our boys are back with the littles. Uh, been here for many years. I'm not on staff, and I'm not a normal part of the preaching rotation uh, in fact, when Pastor Devin a few months back introduced himself, he did so as the third stringer. Well, if that's the case, then I have just been called up from the practice squad this week. So, uh, bear with me. Uh, in fact, the last time that I, that I did preach a sermon here at Fairview was August of 2010. My family was in the, I'm sorry, that wasn't 2010, 2020. Uh, my family was in the States, uh, on a furlough from our, uh, mission overseas at that, uh, time and many of us will remember our world was in a bit of turmoil uh, at that period of uh, history a few years back. Uh, not only our world, but even our pastor was undergoing some uh, significant health uh, setbacks and difficulties that he would only later discover was actually cancer operative in his body. And I preached uh, a message at that time that I think was aptly titled "Living Confidently in Times of Uncertainty." But I had no idea when I preached that message just how prophetic it would prove to be in my own life. As soon thereafter, my family would enter into a season of incredible uncertainty. And we're still living in that space to this day. You see, we had returned to Israel in December of 2020. And we had entered into a time of relatively fruitful ministry. In a lot of ways, it was a time of flourishing for my family. The Lord was opening up doors for us to uh, serve him and to help develop the community of believers in North Israel. So we fast forward a few months in the spring and summer of 2021, I was working in discipleship with a few young believers and other seekers. And we would just have many discussions Uh, among them would be the topic on suffering. And I would field questions from these young men, such as Dan, shouldn't Christians be exempt from sickness and pain? Isn't it God's will that we would be healthy? Why would a good God allow his people to Suffering On and on the questions went. And so I would unpack for them what I believe to be the biblical teaching on suffering. I would, however, always give the disclaimer that I, who at that time was 38 years old, I had never really experienced suffering to the degree that any, many of my heroes in the faith had. Any suffering that I had undergone really was a result of my own foolishness in my rebellious youth and young adult years, but Uh, Many of my heroes in the faith, whether these are heroes found in the pages of scripture or in the annals of church history, there is uh, something that bound these stories together. And it's that each of them had undergone some incredible adversity in their lives. They knew what it was to experience the cross on the way to receiving the crown, And I I knew this to be the case. I would read their stories and I would marvel at the stories and I would give God the praise for the way he'd provided endurance and the way he had sustained the faith of these men and women of God. But I did think somehow that I must be exempt from such hardship. Paul David Tripp, who is a pastor and theologian of our day, he had some very significant health setbacks in recent years. And in 2018, he wrote a book on suffering. And I thought the introduction to that book would be a a fitting introduction to this sermon today. So it's a longer quote. I'm going to read Tripp's words here. He writes, it was a surprise visit by an unwelcome visitor like it is for so many sufferers. I didn't know that day that Mr. Hardship would knock on my door, barge his way in, and take residence in the most intimate rooms of my life. And I didn't have any idea how his presence would fundamentally change so many things for the long run. I watched him go room to room through my life, rearranging everything, wondering what things would be like if and when he finally left. If I could have, I would have evicted this unwanted stranger, but I failed at all my attempts to boot him out the door or deny that he had taken residence in my life. I spent way too much time trying to figure out why he had knocked on my door and why he had chosen this particular moment, but I never got clear answers to my questions. Once I realized that I couldn't kick Mr. Hardship out of my life, I gave myself to trying to understand how to live with him or around him. His presence made me feel like an actor in a drama where everyone had a script but me. I felt unprepared and unable, not just the day he first entered, but day after day. Sure, I had known that Mr. Hardship was out there, and I had heard the stories of how he had entered other people's doors, but somehow I didn't think it would happen to me. Embarrassment washed over me as I thought of the silly platitudes and empty answers I had casually given people when they'd been caught in the confusing drama I was now in. And I thought about how foolish I'd been to think that this unwanted stranger who somehow, some way enters everyone's door would for some reason omit mine. End of quote. So Tripp here compares suffering to an unwelcome stranger who just barges his way into our homes and into our lives. And even though we try, we can't kick him out, much less figure him out. He's just there and he's unyielding and he's intruding into every area of our lives and rearranging everything, as Tripp put it. I know I can feel that. Maybe some of you here today can identify with that. Doesn't Mr. Hardship just seem to pick the right time to show up in our lives? Right when everything seems to be going well, when we are flourishing, in he barges. So what do we do with that? I'm hopeful today that the Apostle Paul can help us at least partially answer that question. If we know Paul's story, we'll remember that he too once had a very promising career, he had, as Saul of Tarsus studied under one of the preeminent theologians and Bible scholars of his day, the rabbi Gamaliel in Jerusalem. He had been entrusted with a position of prestige and authority. He was well known his, and respected, and his career was, in fact, on the up and up. This was, of course, before Paul had his revolutionary encounter with the risen Lord Jesus. And from that point on, everything changed. When Paul came to Jesus the savior did not promise Paul a better life now. Instead we read in Acts 9:16 that Jesus promised that I will show him that is Paul how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And not only that, but Later in Acts 14, we learned that Paul's ministry was characterized as he went from church to church, strengthening the disciples by encouraging them to continue in the faith and telling them it is necessary that through many hardships, we enter the kingdom of God. You see, friends, for Paul and for disciples of Jesus, suffering is a necessity. It is something that has already been written into our stories. And as we read in the narrative of Acts, of course, we read numerous accounts of the types of hardships Paul endured. And then he unpacks and elaborates uh, on those in some of his letters, and particularly so in the most transparent and personal of all of his letters, which is 2 Corinthians. That's where we will be momentarily in chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. As we turn our attention to that text, my goal today is that from this passage, as well as from some observations from this season of suffering for my family, we'll see that God is at work in myriad ways, five of which, with God's help, we're going to look at today. I'd like us all to stand now in honor of reading God's word from 2 Corinthians 1. Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation, and if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself, Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him, we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. So the first point I want us to see today is that in our suffering, God shows us more of himself. So if you're like me, whenever we hear of someone who is undergoing suffering, or perhaps he's a family member or a close friend of a sufferer, our prayer for those persons are that their hearts would not become hardened toward God, but that they would become softened, that they would be more receptive to God's work in their lives. We pray that the sufferer would not grow distant from God because of his hardship, but rather that he would be drawn near to him. I think we, we all pray that unlike Job's wife, who in Job 2.9 famously, infamously encouraged her husband to curse God and die, those of us who suffer as God's people would say instead, as some of our late friend Gary said, no, I will praise God and live You see, Gary said these words or some version of those words continually during the spring and summer of 2022. These were the months between Gary receiving a diagnosis of terminal brain cancer and his death a short time thereafter. I'll spare the details of Gary's story today, but for those who knew him well, we watched this brother undergo pain and undergo difficulty to a degree that few others that I personally know have ever experienced. So the question is how when suffering in that way, when suffering to that degree, how can a dear brother like this, or how can Job or Paul, as they suffer, say, I will praise God. Or like Job says in Job 121, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Or like we read in our text today, Paul says in verse three, blessed be the God and father of our Lord, Jesus Christ." Men are worshiping God through the pain. I'm convinced that there's few things that give God more glory than to see people walk through pain and difficulty with praise on their lips. Could it be, though, that in our suffering, to quote Job in in chapter 42 of his book, that the God of whom we have heard by the hearing of the ear, that he makes his presence and his character more known to us, that his promises become more precious to us, So that in our suffering, as we go through it, we can say, ah, now my eye sees you, God. That is in ways prior to our suffering that I could not. Now my eyes are opened to behold you afresh anew. You see, friends, if anybody knew the Hebrew scriptures, knew the Old Testament well, and what it had to say about the character of the God of Israel, it was Paul. He would have known well about Moses's encounter with Yahweh atop Mount Sinai, where when passing by Moses, the Lord proclaimed himself as the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And Paul would have been very familiar with other Old Testament texts that you'll see on the screen that spoke of Yahweh as the comforter of his people, as the hope of Israel as his people's divine deliverer, as the Lord of life and death who had promised to one day raise the dead. And you see all these ideas are at play here in this text in 2 Corinthians. But I'm convinced, how, however, Though Paul had known that, that it was only after he had encountered the risen Jesus, after he had surrendered to him as Lord, and after he began walking down this difficult road of discipleship with him, that is the way of the cross, the way of suffering, that it was then that Paul, like Job, could say, now I see, now I understand that God of whom I had heard, that God of whom I had even considered myself a servant. He's actually the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all that mercy... And all that comfort and all that hope and all that life, it's found abundantly in the Messiah, in Jesus. And that's why Paul can attest, as Gary would have attested what we read in verse 5 of our text, as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. I want us to, to camp out on this idea of God's comfort, of God as comforter for a moment, because this idea does feature prominently in this section, uh, that word or a version of it showing up 10 times in these five verses. So again, when we hear of someone who's suffering, we want to pray for comfort, that God would comfort that individual. But when the Bible uses that word comfort, it's not always in the same way that we think, such as uh, merely emotional relief or a sense of well-being or physical ease or satisfaction or freedom from pain and anxiety. But rather the biblical idea of comfort and the Hebrew scriptures with which Paul was versed uh, in, he was familiar with, they have in view what one scholar calls God's decisive intervention to rescue and to relieve his people in times of distress and affliction. So this God of comfort to whom Paul is directing his praise here in our text, he's the rescuer, he's the divine deliverer who has come again and again to the apostles' aid and to his people's aid in their times of greatest affliction. One commentator points out that the comfort Paul has in mind Is not some tranquilizing dose of grace that only dulls pain, but a stiffening agent that fortifies one in heart, mind, and soul. God's comfort strengthens. So in our suffering, God is showing us more of Himself, as we've seen, and and as He shows us, us more of Himself, and particularly see, as we experience Him as our divine comforter, He is also strengthening us. For service to others, which is point two, in our suffering, God strengthens us for service. Now, to be sure, there is no mention in this in this passage in these verses uh, of the word strength for service. In fact, the only place you find that word strength is in verse nine, where Paul says that he despaired of it. However, what we do see in this text is something characteristic in all of Paul's writings, and that is a deep an abiding concern for God's people. Specifically, Paul is communicating this awareness that all that he is undergoing, the affliction he's enduring, as well as the consolation that he is receiving from the Lord in the midst of this hardship, it's all for the sake of God's people. You see that in verse four, God comforts us in all our afflictions so that, there's a purpose clause, we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. And in verse six, if we are afflicted, it is for your church, your comfort and salvation. So Paul's able to identify a greater purpose behind his suffering. We should be able to do the same. In this case, he says explicitly that purpose was to minister comfort and to provide salvation for those to whom Paul is ministering. And we see this kind of selflessness and suffering throughout the epistles of Paul. If we'll pay attention to 2 Timothy 2, you'll see on the screen, there we find Paul exhorting his young protege, his son in the faith, Timothy, to be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And then he continues in the next verse to, to charge Timothy to invest his life in the work of making disciples in great commission work. And then in verse three, he invites Timothy to share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And he reminds him in verse 10, that all the suffering and the pain that you go through Timothy, it's for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So I'm Contending today that that there is a spiritual, a supernatural strength that we obtain that is forged in the furnace of affliction, that it's granted as a gift by God's grace. And it enables us to serve his people with greater compassion and with greater concern for their souls. Friends, it wasn't many months ago that a number of us sitting here today in this sanctuary attended the funeral of Angie Colvin. She was 34 years old, just eight months older than my wife, Julia, when she succumbed to cervical cancer after a couple of years battling the disease. And if you guys will remember at the funeral after Pastor Brand had spoken, he opened up the mic for family and loved ones of Angie to come and share their memories of her. And and a young woman stepped up to the microphone, someone who'd known Angie for a number of years, including years before Angie had come to give her life to Jesus. And this friend of hers shared about how Angie had faithfully shared with her the love of God. She'd shared about about the goodness of God through her difficulty. And this friend testified that she had originally been dismissive of Angie's newfound faith in favor of her own apparent new age practices and beliefs. But ultimately, Angie's love for Christ, her deep trust through these challenges, it compelled this one-time faithful New Age adherent to give her life to Jesus. And as she stood here, she testified of that faith. And she had told us that one day prior to the funeral, which was eight days after Angie had passed, that she had been baptized. I don't know about you, but I hear that story and I'm humbled I'm humbled by that story. I hardly knew Angie. In fact, I I maybe have had one or two conversations with her. But her life impacted the eternal destiny of at least one soul. It's impacted my own life in ministry such as I'm sharing it with you all here today. And I've shared that story on other occasions. I'm also humbled to witness my own wife who throughout this battle with breast cancer that she continues to endure, she has said time and time again in one way or another, she said to me, Dan, it's all worth it. If my dad, she would say about her father, comes to put his trust in Jesus, if my little brother, Dan, if one of your siblings, Dan, if our unbelieving friends in the Middle East or in Middle Tennessee come to put their trust in Christ, then it's worth it. (laughs) To be able to say that, to be able to live, to live that way in the midst of a battle for your own survival, that requires no small amount of strength, of supernatural strength from the Lord and a great deal of selflessness. As I mentioned before, and as we've seen in these passages, Paul truly was a selfless sufferer, and he, his suffering was modeled after the most selfless sufferer of all, our Lord, Jesus Christ. John Piper has a little booklet called Don't Waste Your Cancer, and in it he writes, that is the kind of heart God is aiming to create when we suffer. A deeply affectionate, caring heart for people. Don't waste your suffering by retreating into yourself, which is what we are inclined to do. I am. That's our, our sinful nature. We point it back inward. We have pity parties. We do that, but God wants us to move out. That's the type of strength that I'm talking about. When we're strengthened for service, we move out toward others. It's a strength that is provided for us bountifully during times of our greatest physical or emotional Weakness. And it's a strength, I would contend, that often comes from our much-needed realization of our own insufficiency, that in our affliction, God is faithful to strip us of this delusion of self-sufficiency. And that's a good thing, and that's my third point. In our suffering, God strips us of our self-sufficiency. We see that in verses eight and nine. You see, because these efforts that we make at autonomy, Or this effort we make of putting our trust in ourselves and in our resources and abilities that are so severely limited. Guys, this is our greatest liability. And here in these two verses, what we witness is Paul beginning to give the Corinthians a glimpse into some of the suffering that he has undergone. But it really is just that. It's a glimpse. Paul doesn't unpack in any detail here what exactly he has undergone, the precise nature of the affliction. Maybe these guys in Corinth were already aware of those details. I don't know. All we can do is speculate. And many scholars have suggested that what Paul is referring to here are persecutions that he had undergone in Ephesus. We can read about those in the book of Acts chapter 19. That is possible. But the fact remains that he doesn't specify here. But What we do know is that wherever exactly in Asia Minor that these afflictions took place and whatever those specific circumstances were, the suffering that Paul endured was severe. Just look at the way he describes it there in verses eight and nine. He calls it a burden beyond his ability to bear. He says it led him to despair of life itself. It was as if. He had received the sentence of death and it was as a deadly peril that required divine deliverance. I hope we can get a sense of the weight of that burden that Paul was carrying. Maybe some of you have felt that way before. Maybe some of you feel that way today. I know that I've had numerous mornings and I've shared this with others recently where I wake up and there is a weight that sits right here on my chest And I can't carry that. So I have to get out. I have to walk around my neighborhood. I have to cry out to Jesus. Take this. That you who took my burden on the tree. Take this burden from me now. Because I can't carry it. Maybe you feel like today you can't muster the strength to carry whatever cross the Lord has laid on you. Maybe it just feels like life itself is hanging in the balance. Or maybe it's the life of someone that you love. You know, until about... Seventeen months ago, a little less than that, I hadn't felt that way. But then, when we got that phone call from this Arab-Israeli breast doctor in north Israel, he called us to uh, called Julie and myself, summoned us to come into his office where he would then deliver to us this diagnosis of breast cancer. And I remember pushing little Josiah in his stroller through the streets of Kiryat Shmona, our community in the north. And I had lots of hope in my heart. He was six weeks old at that time, Josiah was. And I remember walking into the doctor's office with Julia at my side. It was Breast Cancer Awareness Month. There were pink ribbon decor all over the place. And I remember thinking to myself and saying aloud to myself and to Julia, no chance, not going to be our story. But then came the gavel. And when that gavel dropped, my heart fell into the pit of my stomach. I remember that Arabic doctor saying in his broken English, this is carcinoma, you have cancer. And at that moment, I think that I thought similarly to what Job thought in chapter three of his book, what I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. In the days following the diagnosis, Julie and I found ourselves scrambling around for follow-up medical exams in Tel Aviv. We were trying to procure an emergency passport for Josiah. It was chaotic at the consulate during the COVID uh, uh, crisis. And we were just trying to keep our heads afloat. And I remember walking along a sidewalk in Tel Aviv somewhere between the American consulate and the cafe where Julia was waiting for me and the Lord in his goodness and by his spirit just whispered to my heart, Dan, I'm the father of mercies. I'm the God of all comforts, which just as a side note here, how important it is that we store the word of God in our hearts and minds. That's why we do Awanas. That's why we do the things we do. So that again, when we step into something like this, the Holy Spirit brings those things to our attention that we need to know about God. But from that whisper of the Holy Spirit to my heart, I opened up my Bible app to this passage, 2 Corinthians 1. And as I returned to Julia at the cafe where she awaited me, I read the passage aloud to her. I just want to bring to y'all's attention a couple of things that struck me then and still to this day, they really do strike me. And the first is that is that Paul is absolutely candid and he is absolutely clear in communicating the severity and the gravity of this trial. One commentator says Paul does not pass himself off as some kind of superhero immune to all adversity. He is keenly aware of his defects and weaknesses and confesses that he bordered on absolute despair. Friends, we can do that at times. We can can, uh, pretend ourselves to be these superheroes immune from all adversity, or we can just be closed off and unwilling to share and be transparent with our brothers and sisters out of shame or fear of rejection or, or any number of things. But I think we'd be wise to take a cue from the apostle. He says, guys, I don't want you to be unaware. I'm no super apostle. Don't get it wrong here. This was a severe trial. I was Desperate for God to intervene. So we need to share openly and honestly about the things we're going through. But I also want to point out that Paul had some opponents in Corinth and these opponents were likely doing that very thing too. They were probably passing themselves off as some kind of superheroes. And as they were doing so, they were actually trying to disprove Paul as a legitimate apostle because of his weakness and because of his ongoing suffering. After all, these opponents thought surely an apostle of the Lord Jesus would not be undergoing such a hardship as this. However, throughout Paul's writings, he's very explicit Paul is when he is that far from disproving his qualifications as an apostle. His sufferings are actually the proof of his apostleship. He is, in fact, embodying in his life the message he is proclaiming with his lips. And that's the message of a savior made weak. It's the message of a servant who came to suffer and to die and then to rise again for his people. He's embodying that as he's going about his ministry and about his life. That's so why he can say elsewhere, I bury in, in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. And I would gladly fill up in my body what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his people, the church. He's saying, I'm carrying this on. What you see in me, that's what I've been telling you about him. Second thing that, I, that jumped out of me from these two verses is that Paul's also again able to identify a primary purpose for God, allowing him to undergo this trial severe as it was. And he says that in the latter part of verse nine, he says, this trial was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Earlier, I pointed out the ambiguity about the precise nature of that affliction, but I really think that that ambiguity is purposeful. I think the ambiguity is there because the lessons that Paul is conveying to his readers and to us is one that is universally applicable to all sufferers at all times, no matter what is the degree or no matter what is the duration of that suffering. And that lesson is that God is after our trust. He's after our full and complete reliance upon him alone and his power and his provision David Garland writes that Paul was no different from other human beings in being tempted to place his confidence on his own powers rather than on God. I I, I don't know about you guys, but I can do that too. I place my confidence in my own powers. Uh, I was reminded just as I prepared the message this week, just how deep and how strong these roots are of our prideful self-reliance. And it reminded me, I'm gonna give a disclaimer here. I'm a very novice gardener, but it reminded me of the end of last harvest season when my okra plants had long been dead and I had been delinquent in dealing with them. And I go outside and I just remember the frustration that I felt as I, with my own two bare hands, unsuccessfully attempted to root to uproot those uh, from the ground. And I realized pretty quickly that something much stronger than these two bare hands is gonna be required to remove these pretty stubborn and, and rather slippery plants of mine. Let me tell you something, guys, if that is the case with ochre plants, how much more so with our sin, with, the, with our deep uh, sinful pride that we have. God knows what tools are going to be needed uh, to employ in order to deal with that stuff in our life. And oftentimes I would contend that he would use pain and difficulty and adversity to do so. To quote from David Garland again, he says, we frequently need a good dose of helplessness. When we are reduced to extremities and stripped of all false self-confidence before we learn humility and open ourselves up to God's power, deep certainty of death for Paul led to a deeper trust in God. So just thank the Lord today. If you're going through something and God's stripping you of any false self-confidence, he's doing so that you would trust him more fully, that you would experience his power and his love more deeply. Perhaps today we can make one of the great Puritan prayers, one of our own. We find it uh, recorded for us in the book, The Valley of Vision. And it says the following. It says, Thou, God, has disarmed me of the means in which I trusted. And I have no strength but in thee. Keep me sensible of my weakness and of my dependence upon thy strength. Let every trial teach me more of thy peace, more of thy love. May the Holy Spirit confirm my trust in thy promised help and let me walk humbly in dependence upon thee for Jesus' sake. Next and briefly, two more points, we're gonna fly through them in verses 10 to 11. Number four is that in our suffering, God assures us of our salvation. If you look at verse 10, you'll notice how Paul is able to look back at God's saving activity in the past. And what that does is it provides him with assurance that he will be saved from his present dilemma. And it also secures his hope for a future deliverance. Friends, we need to practice this same thing and often, that no matter what we're facing today, we should be able to recount God's past saving acts for us and most of all, to preach the gospel to ourselves because it's in the gospel that we see Jesus bearing the unbearable burden of our sin and the wrath of God that uh, is deserved because of our sin. We see him, in fact, as he looked ahead to the cross where he would bear that wrath, despairing of life itself. You can recall in John 12, we're told that the soul of the son of God was troubled. There was chaos in his soul. And he says, oh, father, what shall I say? Deliver me from this hour. But then he says, no, father, for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Glorify your name. He's despairing of life in the garden of Gethsemane when he's sweating drops of blood in agony of facing the forsakenness of his father and the cup of wrath that he would drink down to the dregs. We see Jesus in the gospel, the holy and innocent son of God issued the sentence of death as a substitute for sinners like us. That sentence that Paul said, it was as if he had received Jesus received it, but it was the sentence due us. But three days after that request for deliverance in Gethsemane went unanswered by his father, God raised him up from the dead. And it is through the life and the death and the resurrection of the son of God that our salvation is secure no matter what we're facing today. And we need to recount that message to us often. And friends, this is why we celebrate. Even in our suffering, we can celebrate because it's wonderful news for sinners and sufferers like me and like you. Because I don't know about you all, but that unwanted stranger, Mr. Hardship, he just shows up, doesn't he? At the, at the most convenient of times. If he hasn't appeared in your life yet, he will. In some way or another, he will. Because you'll remember, none of us are immune from suffering, though we would like to believe that we are. The question today is, how are you responding to your present suffering? Or how are you preparing yourself for any future suffering? adversity that may come your way. I hope you've seen today that the God of the Bible, the God that we worship and proclaim is not some deity that sits aloof from all of your pain and struggle, unwilling and uncaring uh, and unwilling to intervene. He is for you. God does in fact want you to flourish and he knows how to orchestrate the circumstances in your life so that you would do so. Lastly, as a final point from our text, and this is also our call to response, I want to point out to you from verse 11 that in our suffering, God surrounds us with intercessors. You see, Paul absolutely believed in a sovereign God whose purposes could not and would not be thwarted. And we believe that here as well, that the Lord of heaven and earth, he's not surprised by the sufferings and the setbacks in our lives. And he is not dethroned for one moment, but he reigns in his goodness and in his wisdom now and forevermore. Yet in verse 11, Paul enlists the church to pray for him because Paul understands that this is a primary means of grace that God uses for the accomplishment of his purpose in our lives and on this earth. And guys, I am so grateful for this church family and I'm grateful for the body of Messiah around the globe who have surrounded my family in prayer during this difficult season in our lives. And that's what we are here to do today. Whatever you're going through, we're here to surround you. We're here to intercede for you. Jesus himself at the right hand of the father does so. So today, respond to whatever the Holy Spirit may be doing in your heart right now. He is at work. The altar is open. The prayer room is open. I'm gonna be back there. I'd love to speak with you and to pray with you. He is a God who comforts the downcast. Come to him and ask ask him to show himself to you. Ask him to give you the strength that you do not have, that you cannot muster by yourself to face this wilderness of life with all of its woes and all of its worries. And maybe some of you here today, you're carrying the greatest burden of all. And the sentence of death is upon you because you're carrying the burden of your sin where you were not intended to carry that. Come to Jesus today. Come to Jesus, I beg you, if you have not done so and cast that burden upon him and he will provide for you comfort unthankable, hope undying and life evermore. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we worship you. I thank you for this church. I thank you that you love your church. I thank you that you are good and wise and sovereign and that you are our king and that you are our friend and that you are our father. We love you. Do a work by the power of your spirit now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Fairview Church Podcast. To find out more about our church, please visit us online at www.myfairview.org.